And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM, located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is the Finding a Voice, a spoken word programming here. Every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And uh, coming up on the show today in the first hour, from an April 4th reading uh, from the book, What the Poets Are Doing at Novel Idea Bookstore. And as emceed by the book's editor, Rob Taylor, you'll hear readings by Ben Laroncior, Stephen Hyten, and Armand Garnett Rufo. In the second hour, from the April 2nd open mic, in the end, the journey continues. Open mic reading. And I should mention, too, that... Uh, the last few minutes of Armand's, or uh, it might have been uh, Rob at that point, uh, but the final segment uh, will run over into the second hour, and then right after that, uh, you'll hear readings in the round by Matt Drabenstadt, Dale Tracy, Roger Dory, Judith Popeil, Aaron Boyce, Eric Folsom, Brent Raycroft, Ron Chase, Benjamin Laughlin, Alice uh, Cooper, Jenny Marshall, Michael Castiles, Sarah M. Tish, Bob McKenzie, and myself. Yeah, we're doing it in the round now, so that's why there's always a lot of single poem readings, uh, but they'll be groups. So anyway, it seemed to work really well. It was last week, I think, I started that. So yeah, we're going to do it again this week. So uh, this first, though, the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its... Con- entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. Uh, I think I have a bit of time uh, for us to share some upcoming events and calls for submissions, obviously not in the first hour, but in the second hour today. So I'll tell you what, let's just jump right into it. Up first, uh, from an April 4th reading from the book, What the Poets Are Doing at Novel Idea Bookstore, and is emceed by the book's editor, Rob Taylor. You'll hear first his intro, and then welcome to the event, and uh, then a reading by Ben Laroncier. And here we go. Thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. Um, It's going to be an interesting evening. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen, but I'm sure it'll be fun. Uh, And to kick off, let me introduce Rob Taylor, the editor of this book, uh, of which we were gathering here to uh, talk about. Rob. I knew it. Stranger, if I stand in front of this or behind. Do whatever you can. <laughs> what, what, what is your feeling? Would you like to see our Just lower not half? right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has never yeah. happened before. Yeah. <laughs> Go behind it, use it as a pole here, and then I can. Testify. Um, hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for coming out. This is a fantastic uh, turnout, and um, I'm just really... I, I've done a few of these now. This is the sixth launch we've done. We've done some in BC and some in Ontario now, and this one definitely has the best appetizers. So a huge thank you to Novel Idea and to, to, um, to everybody involved in making that happen, and to all of you. Um, the book we're here to celebrate and launch is uh, What the Poets Are Doing, Canadian Poets in Conversation. I'm sure you are aware where the title comes from. It's fun to be in Kingston and have uh, the tragically hip 
lyric uh, titled book um, be launched here. Um, this book is actually uh, a sequel to a book that came out in 2002. This to me is the preferred length of time that should happen between all sequels, mm -hmm. 16 years. <laughs> if they paced out the Alvin and the Chipmunk movies or the Transformers movies similarly, I think we would all be better for it. But uh, in 2002, this book came out. It was organized by um, Tim Bowling, the poet who's in Edmonton. And it kind of gathered up all the writers that we know of as kind of the can-lit poets of the 60s and 70s and, um, and had younger poets who were just emerging, maybe had one book out, maybe were working their way towards their first book, um, conduct interviews with them. So people like P.K. Page, Michael Andache, Don Mackay, Patrick Lane, Sharon Thiessen were all interviewed in this book. And in 2002, I was uh, 19 and very impressionable and thinking maybe I would consider being a writer. And, uh, and I came up on this book in a bookstore. And what I found this book did was um, it didn't necessarily tell you how to write. It wasn't like a creative writing class in a box or anything like that. It was more valuable to me. It taught me how to live as a writer, kind of how to think as a writer, how to interact between two writers. All of that kind of extra stuff that you can't really teach directly um, really came to me, and it made me desire far more to be a writer. Um, so I don't know if I should thank or blame this book for what happened afterward. But, um, but I, kind of, I read it a couple times when it first came out, then I put it on my shelf. And then in 2017, beginning of 2017, I went to interview Tim Bowling for um, a, uh, just an, an interview for a new book of his that he had out. And I was like, oh, there's an excuse to read this book. And so I read through it again. And it was just as alive and just as vibrant and just as valuable to me as it had been 16 years before, and I just, it's a, it's a big book, and I'm slowly going through, and I'm like, somebody should do this again, and by the end, I had convinced myself that I was going to do it, <laughs> so I contacted Tim, who was uh, quite happy that, you know, uh, to let somebody else do it, I don't think he was planning on doing the sequel at any given mo immediate moment, um, and uh, I contacted the press, and uh, Nightwood was happy to do it again, so it's the same press, um, they just took a long time getting to the sequel, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so this book um, features 10 convers 11 conversations in total, 10 that are uh, proper, just two people chatting about poetry and the writing world, and then one afterward, which is co-written by Nick Thran and Sue Sinclair, two wonderful poets who are married to each other, and I thought it would be really fun to have people who were married to each other um, argue in the book, and, and um, Silas at Nightwood said that that was cheating, and so then I said, well, why don't we let them have a really weird afterword, and, and just, and so they did that, so it's a lot of fun. But the conversations, and you're, you're going to hear from three of these people today, um, are between Stephen Heighton and Ben LaDouceur, Armin Garnet Ruffo, and Liz Howard. Oh, I didn't notice, the first three names in the book are, are all here. Um, so now, it's all, you won't see any of the people who to come here. Uh, Armin Garnet Ruffo and Liz Howard, Sina Kiris and Kinesia Lubrin, Dion Brand and Suvankam Tamavangsa, Marilyn Dumont and Katerina Vermette, Sue Goyette and Linda Besner, Karen Soli and Amanda Jernigan, Russell Thornton and Phoebe Wang, Tim Bowling and Raul Fernandez, and Elizabeth Baczynski and Kayla Zaga. Um, just to, to start things off and give you a sense of the book, I'm just going to read one short <coughs> excerpt. 
we tried our best to make um, every reading just gender exclusive, so all female or all male. That's not true. It just <laughs> turned out today that we had all guys. There's, there's actually, I think, 13 or 14 of the people are, are women, but we, we took almost every man in the book and invited them to Kingston to have this <laughs> So I thought for whatever reason that had happened, and so we would add a, at least read a little bit from one of the excerpts between um, two female writers in the book. Um, and this is between the conversation between Dion Brand and Suvankam Thamavangsa. Um, Suvankam asks Dion, as a reader, what are you still learning about yourself? And Dion says, I notice now how I read. The pleasures are different. Now I read for structure. So the shape of the work is what gives me pleasure, or the insight it accumulates. I'm interested in the architecture of the work, what it borrows from, what it leaves unchanged from the past, how it breaks embedded narratives or not, how lazy or how agile the poet. A dear friend, poet friend, asked me a long time ago, D, does the world need that line? And it took me aback and then made me laugh and then made me measure each line of poetry I wrote against this question. Such a simple question and such a difficult one, bracing and settling. And then Suvankam says, and unsettling. She continues, I'm learning that I haven't read enough, and what I love or pay attention to sometimes is not important to anyone but me. I'm not generous with what I read. I can love what I read, but I realize I can be an angry reader. Sometimes I don't understand why someone published something, why it exists in the world. I want to be more generous that it has managed to exist. Um, I understand that I'm not, and I know I can't pretend. We always take note of a beautiful poem. I think we learn to be better writers when we understand what makes a bad one. What's the thing about a bad poem you learn from? And Dion Brand says, fundamentally I respect every poem attempted. It is a sign of such faith in what can be lived, understood, or communicated. So even bad poems or weak poems I appreciate. I don't like a pretentious poem though, a poem that announces a link to European traditions expecting a casual reference or clumsy and obsequious invocation to Keats or Shelley or ancient Greece <laughs> to the actual work of poetry making. A good poem collects or tries to collect all the difficulty of living, all the tension of being in that moment into one sound or one image and elicits a feeling that the poet and the reader have not had before, or more radically, that the world has not had before. What's a beautiful poem for you, and what's a bad poem? And then Suvankam says, all poems are bad, or at least they begin that way. But something happens to one, and it isn't anymore. I don't know what that is, that thing that changes it. I recognize it when it's beautiful, and I don't know why it's beautiful. It's not something I can explain. Um, so as I mentioned, we're going to hear from three readers today. If time permits, we'll have a little Q&A at the end, so I'd like to say that up front, um, both so that you can think about questions and then be disappointed when we run out of time and don't actually do the Q&A. But then you can chat with the poets afterwards. And we're going to go in the order that they appear in the book, which is right up front. Uh, we're going to start off with um, Ben Ladusser, who we just had a book come out. Has it come out? Is this a pre? Yeah, like this week. It's, it's launching tomorrow, though, in Toronto. Tomorrow, right? So this is this is does not even exist in the world yet because until it's in Toronto, that's the rule we believe in. DC. Until it exists in Toronto. Okay. Um, so and it's called um, Mad Long Emotion. Just came out, and I'll read the full bio instead of just waving a book around. Sorry, Ben. Uh, he's Ben lives in Ottawa. 
His first collection, Otter. Oh, I love having visuals for all of this. His first collection, Ottawa, Ottawa Otter, uh, was selected as a best book of 2015 by the National Post, nominated for a 2016 Lambda Literary Award, and awarded the 2016 Gerald Lambert Memorial Award for Best Debut Collection in Canada. Uh, in 2018, he received the Dane Ogilvie Prize for Emerging LGBT Writers. Ladousseur has published short fiction in magazines like Masonov, Prism International, and Prairie Fire, and his second collection of poems, Mad Long Emotion, uh, is about to come out tomorrow. Hi, everyone. I don't think I've ever done a reading at a till before. <laughs> so if you'd like to buy a book during my reading, I'll be here. Um, I have spent lots of time behind a till, and I have spent a moderate amount of time reading poetry, and now they combine. Um, so it's neat that Stephen and I are both here because we talk to each other in the book, so I guess if you just listen carefully enough, you can like skip the first part of the book <laughs> and you buy it. Um, Steve's going to read from our interview, and I'm going to read from our interview. Um, I wanted to read a part, I, I didn't really know, I never read out an interview that I did out loud, <laughs> so this is weird. <laughs> um, but let's, let's go for it. And uh, there's a part where I'll, I'll begin by reading Stephen's part, and then I'll read my answer. And uh, I, I want to read this part because it's the part that I thought was like most important to share and broadcast. And it's about the, I guess, work-life balance or creative work day job balance. And uh, I, I was just at a big conference called AWP in Portland where it's a whole bunch of writers avoiding talking about their day job. <laughs> and it's like, we all kind of have this thing in our life and artists for some reason with each other, I think, talk around it sometimes, so I'll begin by reading Stephen's part. Stephen says, As for your feelings about poetry threatening to fire you for moonlighting, I've heard that some poets, Wallace Stevens and T.S. Eliot, are examples from the past, find that working a normal full-time job actually sharpens their poetic practice because it confines and channels their energy and time. Maybe working in genres besides poetry could have that same effect for you. And here's a related metaphor. If you miss a night's sleep and thus a night's worth of dreams, the next night you dream vividly and at great length as the expressive pressure of the night mind finally finds release. So in your case, maybe your instincts are whispering that you should avoid diffusing your energies, but rather build and concentrate them like dreams deferred on a sleepless night or strong imagery bottled up during a work day. And my response, <laughs> I too have a day job. One that has almost no content overlap with my creative life. I work at a small nonprofit, coordinating and communicating. This setup has been working out fine for me as a writer for a few reasons that I can detect, and probably yet other reasons I cannot detect. What's detectable? The change that is instigated by poetry and personal journalism can be, at best, very difficult to discern or even to believe in. So it's been a nice counterbalance to work at an organization that's striving to make things better in the world in small and concrete ways. I also get to take the odd business trip, and the business trip is a really special category of time. Aside from the meetings you are traveling for, you spend a lot of time being lonely in a hotel room that has a desk and a window overlooking a city you do not live in. These are amazing conditions for creative productivity, 
rivaled perhaps only by the plane rides to and from, which are long, boring, antisocial, and internet-free. When I was 25, I got my first few arts grants. I reduced my work at Starbucks from 40 hours per week to 20 hours per week. I thought, maybe I'll just live very affordably and make coffee sometimes and string together grants and freelance gigs until I die. <laughs> <laughs> then one night, I woke up with a bone-crushing toothache. After a sleepless night of failed internet remedies, one was garlic. I ate cloves of garlic for hours. That's some bonus content for you. You can't find it in the book. <laughs> After a sleepless night of failed internet remedies, I sucked it up and spent over $100 on an emergency dentist appointment. $100 was a lot of money to me that year. At the appointment, I learned that the only way to stop the pain was a root canal that would cost over $2,500. I thanked the dentist and paid the receptionist and went to the building stairwell, and I cried and I cried. I ate the painkillers they gave me and watched the movie 9 to 5 with a dear friend. That was my first time watching 9 to 5. I've since rewatched that movie many times. Great film. <laughs> um, I resolved to get a job, something with benefits, somewhere, somehow, down the line, a 9 to 5. It was all very formative. Many remarkable writers and artists tolerate or even derive creative energy from the nibbling fear of where future money will come from. I found it too stressful. There were fewer ideas, fewer poems, instead of more. My big point is that having a day job has been artistically enabling to me. It takes care of the money so that I can rest easy and write the things I find fun and personally important. Even if I didn't have to work, and I had every hour of my day to dedicate to writing, I'm not convinced I'd write that much more than I do now. When I was at the Alperty A-frame for three months with a monthly stipend and a rental car and often no company, although Stephen tells me that I have a reputation for having partied a lot during my <laughs> residency. So sometimes, yes, I had company. I got a lot done at first, but before long, my productivity wound down. I also felt painfully guilty on days when the writing went poorly. That leads me to a question that I asked Stephen, but I'll let him read uh, his own excerpt uh, of his choice from the book. So that's what, I guess that's what my, that's the interview portion of what I'll share with you. Um, there are poems published here. I'm going to read one, the poem of mine that is published here. I hope Stephen reads his poem that's in the book, because it, it's a really good poem. And uh, then I think I'll read another poem by someone else who's not me or Stephen mm -hmm. from the book. And I'll end just by reading a little bit from my book that is set to be born tomorrow into the world, <laughs> according to Ross. <laughs> so the book in the, or sorry, the poem in the book of mine is called Salutations from Abitibi. <clears throat> Alone clouds refused to cohere. They darkened the city in blotches. They rendered the city Dalmatian. I forgot my lover on the bus. The brakes woke him up at Abitibi, and he found work there. All year, mosquitoes bit his fumbling frame. The bites were like Grecian constellations seen on a clear taupe day. My Zippo was on his person. I was planning to quit with the smoking, but how shall I now sing the phrase of my only warm coat? <coughs> when winter arrives, the mosquitoes will expire, and material will cover the bodies of men. At least I received a blank postcard 
on the birthday of my lover. Its message, I am alive, I am alone, I am not willing to speak. Some men are darkened in the long run by sun. Others more quickly by clouds. Um, so the poem I'll read is by Kayla Zaga, who is a West Coast poet. Um, and it's just a really dope poem. <laughs> and it's the last poem in the book. So that's a fun thing. <laughs> um, and it's called Death Starring Winona Ryder. It's by Kayla Zaga. Her eyes are the three faces of Cerberus. The third hides behind her shocked bangs. No, the third is her pursed mouth. If you zoom in on Winona Ryder, you will see her skin is filled with third eyes. We call them pores. Each one of them is rolling. Each one of them a head to the dog guarding death. Of course, an actor covered in third eyes that also guard death would be difficult to work with. What did you expect? She has the most magical acne. You may feel her whole body making eye contact with you because it is, but mostly her whole body has better things to look at, like very long trains and sexy rivers. If the dogs guard death, then inside of her is where all the dead people live. All the living people live outside of her eating pretzels, etc., like you and me. Wow, she is extremely haunted. <laughs> Ever thought Beetlejuice felt a bit too same-same to your home movies? Me too. All our Ouija boards call out Winona during sex over and over. It would be boring if it wasn't Winona. Don't call her a bitch, though she is covered in bitches, and sometimes they are in heat. Sometimes you can smell her skin. It smells like it just ran into the yard and murdered something so quickly you didn't hear it die. But what happens when Winona dies? What will happen to us when Winona dies? So fun, right? Um, I, I, I think I'll just read two poems from this. Mad Long Emotion, it's fun it's for me because it's like new. I'm not, I'm not sick of reading from it yet. And uh, it is uh, a book, a lot of which was at least edited at the A-Frame, which is in Prince Edward County. and. Uh, I really enjoyed my time there, and oh yeah, I also really love Kingston, and I'm really happy to be reading in Kingston. I've been here many times. I visited uh, friends at Queens a whole lot during my undergrad, and I went to the Wolf Island Music Festival like four years in a row, and um, it's a great music festival, and I would go for free because I'd volunteer, and I wanted to share with you all a way to maximize profit at the Wolf Island Music Festival, basically. If you volunteer to be teardown, they don't expect that you're going to be coherent or sober at the end of the night. So they don't have any work for you. And if you just show up, they're like, what? You're sober? OK, like, tape up a box. And then like, that's all you have to do. And you get to camp there for free, and you don't have to pay to attend Wolf Island. If there's any like members of the board of director from Wolf Island here, I'm sorry. But we learned this in year two, and then it held, it held for us. Anyway, I don't go anymore. Um, I'll read the first poem from the book. This is a fun book because it took all the clout I had, but at the front it says property of, and there's a space where I will write your name what? if you buy it. <laughs> like a kid's book. It's very fun. 
event, I just want to say that they only let me have two. Oh. For more. Okay. But uh, oh. because it was coming out, they, they didn't have enough stock. Oh. So wow. they only had the two that I originally ordered. Well, as everyone knows, it doesn't really exist yet. <laughs> so those are going for seventy-five dollars. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, there's two. Well, I have another book, but it doesn't have. It's not very fun to sign. But you can buy my other book. It's my other. You know, if you like what I'm going to read, you'll probably like my first book too. Um, this poem is called "Property of." It's the first poem in the book. Hello, I like to buy flowers for people. Gifts of all kinds, and I give them my signature. It is easily forged, but too late to change. I have found myself already, and it went fine. Fine if you want to know me. I just want to know you back. All of you. Then, all of the next person. If I could, I would send you a forest to live in. Instead, here's my name on the door of a book. A book is a tree a brain gives a brain to. Come, place your mind beside mine, all untroubled. This gift, a gift like every gift. Really, it's for me. <laughs> and I'll just read one more poem. Uh, the book starts with a bunch of sonnets, and this would be the last, second last sonnet in the book. I, uh, so when I did the Alperti A-frame residency, I was really excited, but I didn't know how to drive. <laughs> so I learned to drive for the residency, um, which meant I wasn't like the best driver during my residency. <clears throat> this poem is called Shoulder Season. I drove a rental car through the outdoors as they went orange. Suddenly, making of a field mouse fine red particles, I said, God, as though all small lives were mine to speak first about. God is a one-word love poem you recite quietly. You recite it alone, even if there are other people. Quiet as the funerals you throw inside your mind for all the lives you pulverize. If a deciduous tree is beautiful while orange, so too are other carnages. So theirs is a poem you keep at the back of your throat, it being the fashion of the day to love life and keep it at that. Only with trees do you hope the departed are young. The ends trees meet, have adult teeth, and often no eyes on the offing. Now I am back in the woods, mid-shiver, lacking toilet paper. He dares to return to this place, goes the forest. Not even a mouse in his mouth go the trees. Thank you, guys. That was great. And you just heard uh, Ben uh, Ladenshire uh, from uh, and that followed uh, Rob Taylor's introduction, who was the MC and editor of the book "What the Poets Are Doing." That happened April fourth at Novel Idea Bookstore. Uh, this reading, and uh, then uh, 
coming up next in it. You'll hear with Rob's again, intro to him, I believe, Stephen Heighton. Here we go. Thank you so much. Um, Steve, I'll give you some time to work your way to the front. I'm just going to get grab wine. And All right. Well, I'll, I'll try to stretch it out while you get the wine. Um, thanks so much. That was wonderful, and I love that you read a poem from another poet in the book. I should explain that this book is a little bit different than the other one, uh, if you happen to, to know about it, in that we included poems in the book. And one of the reasons we did that is that we really wanted, uh, we, I, I guess I really wanted this book to be two-way conversations between the two poets, uh, who were at least one generation most of the time removed from one another. And what that meant realistically was that the, old, the older, the senior poet, um, was probably going to be better known to readers than the younger poet. Depends, not always, but probably. And so we wanted to make sure that there were poems in there as well, so that even if you're not familiar with the poet who you're reading, you get a little introduction to the poet. And it also gives you a chance to talk about the poem itself. Either they talk about the poem, the poem shows up in the book. Um, sometimes it doesn't. You never know. You wait in suspense. Will the poem appear? Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I thought that was wonderful that, um, that you managed to get Kayla's poem in there as well. Uh, next up, we have um, someone who's made it all the way here from Kingston, um, Stephen Hyden. And his, this is, oh, this is, I think this is all still accurate. That your most recent collection is The Waking Comes Late from House of Anansi 2016, which was a Raymond Susser Award finalist and received the 2016 Governor General's Award for Poetry. His, no, his 2006 novel Afterlands was cited on Best of the Year lists in publications in the U.S., the U.K., and Canada, and is now in pre production for film. That's very, no. It's been pre production it's for film. You've been for saying five that for five years. <laughs> <laughs> That's typical. There we go. His short fiction and poetry have received four gold National Magazine Awards and have appeared in the London Review of Books, Poetry, Best Canadian Poetry, Best American Poetry. How do you get in Best American Poetry? I guess they, they just saw that, a poem. I don't know. I, they they didn't check your passport or anything? <laughs> Tin House, TLR, Agni, Zoetrope, and the New England Review. Uh, Stephen Hyten also teaches workshops, translates poetry, he's a wonderful translator, and reviews fiction for the New York Times Book Review. That's all I know. Stephen. Okay, I, I, I really enjoyed doing this interview. I'm going to talk a little bit about how we actually did it, because that became one of the uh, one of the subjects that we discussed, um, I think Ben sort of felt, why don't we just do this in person or on the phone? Which is a really good question, because you get a very different kind of interview, really good in its own way. I'll talk about that in a moment. I'm going to read a couple of things. Here's a, I, I, I'll just start with this, because um, because uh, Rob was talking about my translation. So here's a new one that's just totally in process. I wanted to translate a poem I really love by uh, Jacques Prévert, uh, published in 1945 called, uh, well, in English, familial. Mother is knitting a sweater. The son's away at war. It's all good, she thinks, whatever. And the father, what about the father? What's he up to? Business. The mother with her knitting, the son away at war, and daddy doing his business. It's all good, thinks dad, whatever. And the son, whatever thinks the son. Sonny thinks absolutely nothing. The mother knits, the father counts, the son fights wars. When the war is over, finally, he'll count too in business with father. The war isn't over, and it isn't over. The mother knitting sweaters and sweaters, daddy doing his business forever. The son is killed, for him it's all over. Off to the graveyard go father and mother. C'est la vie, they figure, c'est la guerre. 
Life gets on with its killing, its knitting, its counting, its getting, its wars and its business and its sweaters. Business gets on with business, its business, the filling of orders, the following orders. Life gets on with filling the graveyard. So, 74 years later in exactly the same spot, culturally, socially, politically. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm going to read uh, from Ben's uh, comment or sort of objection. He said, the conversation we're currently having is a bit silly to me because it isn't happening in person or over the phone. We are emailing a Word document to each other back and forth. Sometimes I change the phrasing on an answer I've had literal months to consider. <laughs> I even have the option of rephrasing my question following the advent of your response so that we both sound smarter. <laughs> In my capacity as prose editor for ARC magazine, I have asked a few poets if they'd be interested in phone interviews rather than the now standard email interview. And by the way, any of you who don't, haven't read ARC or don't subscribe to it, it is a wonderful magazine, Canada's premier poetry magazine. I think you, you all know that probably. Uh, I have asked a few poets if they'd be interested in phone interviews rather than the now standard email interview. I've only been met with resistance on this front for both emerging and established authors. I get that, but upon publication, I always take the measure to clarify, as I am also clarifying right now, that these interviews are not live, are not alive, are not from mouths in motion. These are the words of slow fingers, and this birthing method imparts a different quality to the content. I think now of food photography, how it's easier to use plastic lettuce and spray polished patties than to use real food. Of course, it's easier and prettier, but is it the thing to do? I think now also of Stalin's Architects, your first book, which was reissued a few years ago. It's actually called St Stalin's Carnival. And I love, we, did, we left this in because we, uh, as a sort of nod to sort of more spontaneity. I think now also <laughs> Stalin's Architects, your first book, which was reissued a few years ago. In the foreword, you admit to editing the book a little, as you also did with some reissued fiction of yours. How did it feel to do this? Amongst the feelings this activity provoked, could you detect any dishonesty, for instance? Great questions. And I said, I think I prefer your version of my title to the actual one, Stalin's Carnival. <laughs> um, and so we decided to just sort of step that whole interaction. So I wrote that I agree that spontaneous remarks can be honest, but they're not always clear. Hence, my own resistance to interviews transcribed straight from conversation. Uh, what use is honesty if readers miss the point of what I'm trying to say? For me, revision is a back and, in a back-and-forth interview like this one serves the same purpose as gradual, careful revisions in fiction or poetry, trying to get my words and thoughts right and clear rather than leaving that labor to the reader. I feel I should be cleaning up my own spills, and I make a lot of them. It's possible that you don't so that a live interview would work better for you. I know several writers who speak in neat, coherent paragraphs, which are still full of vitality, as clarity doesn't have to be dull and studied. Remember, anybody talk much to David Helwig? He could speak in perfect <laughs> paragraphs, one after another. Um, but the problem for me goes deeper than clarity. What I say off the cuff is not only unclear, but sometimes not what I actually think, because often I don't yet know what I think, and I won't know until I start talking about it or writing about it rambling a little, circumambulating an idea or meaning that I can't quite see, then circling and fumbling and groping inward closer and closer. <coughs> so for me, revision isn't about, isn't about falsifying my ideas, but rather finding them. 
than presenting them to a reader in a form that skips those parts of my fumbling process that would seem too long, slow, or repetitive, etc. Um, but is something squandered in the process, some kind of first draft vitality? Uh, I wrote probably here, and I should have said definitely. Maybe it comes down to the difference between speech and writing. If I saw a writer being interviewed live on stage and reading an answer from prepared notes, or from something like this, uh, I'd be disappointed. I'd want and expect a live interview to involve improv, jazz-like conceptual riffs, small gaffes, sheepish retractions, bold statements that seem to strike the speakers themselves as spontaneous discoveries. That's all beautiful. Private conversations can and should have that same quality of solo or musical discovery, or mutual discovery. But that's spoken language. Written language is deeply different. Right now, you and I can't rely on facial cues, body language, or gestures, not to mention assenting nods or requests for clarifications to help us land our meanings. Uh, and I go on in that vein, and I'll just go skip uh, to my conclusion. I'm saying I think it's okay to fix mistakes that don't alter your vision. And yes, I did just go back through this answer and fix some gaffes and clean up a few spills, but I did it fast and just once. So, Stet, next time instead we'll talk in person. And I hope that's true. Uh, and, and that is true. The final answer, I didn't revise the way I did the others. And I actually like um, the tone of it better. So I guess for me, the way to do it in the future is to answer really quickly and do one revision, but not allow myself more than one. I found the other answers were a little too measured uh, even stiff at times, and uh, they felt self-conscious to me when I reread them. So, um, so I'm going to finish with um, two short poems. Uh, one, the one that was included in the book, uh, which I'll read. I guess I'll read that last. First, I'm going to read a new poem. Um, I've been working on it for a couple of years. I think it's finished now. It's called Christmas Work Detail Samos. Uh, Samos being one of the Greek islands where a lot of the Syrian, Afghan, and Iraqi refugees were arriving, especially in 2015, but they're continuing to arrive now in smaller numbers. So Christmas work details Samos, and it begins with a, an epigraph in Arabic, Eid Malad Majid, which means uh, happy birth feast or Merry Christmas. In the olive grove on the high ground facing west into rain, we dig graves for three men drowned in the straits. Syrians, maybe, dispossessed of everything by the sea, so there's no knowing for sure. This much you can say for any grave, it's landlocked. And these men will lie a decent distance uphill, out of sight of the beach where on Sunday their bodies washed ashore in plausible orange life vests, 10 euros each, packed with sawdust, bubble wrap, rags. These rains haven't softened the soil, yet digging up here feels only right. The waves that buried them terrified them first, and we guess again that they, like the ones the crossing didn't kill, were from desert towns this sea inconceivable as the Arctic. And each cardboard casket awaiting its patient passenger looks almost seaworthy after the cut-rate raft they fled in and which, deflated, washed in after them, silent, as if shyly contrite. It seems we failed them 
despite the safe graves. In a grove this untended, the ground is brined, bitter with black fruit rotting, and on islands, nowhere is far enough from the waves. <clears throat> Just before I finish with my short poem from the interview, here's a, uh, like a very short poem from Amanda Jernigan's interview, uh, and she talks about working on poems that literally loop. So when you hear the last line of this 12-line poem, it's going to lead you back into the first. Excerpt from The Signs of Jonas by Amanda Jernigan, wonderful poet who I mentored some years ago, and now she's a colleague and peer, and I love her work. Very short, tacit, terse, concentrated poems. Stones to mark the places where whom you seek isn't there. Chill foxfire in the rot underfoot. There is that, able to raise light of these sticks, children of those, and children of those stones to mark. It goes back into like a sort of round or loop. And finish with my poem from the book, The Last Sturgeon, which is also the first poem in my last collection. Delta wave shadows of his deeds and didn'ts slid under his shoes like fillet knives, severing souls from soil. So he always walked a little above his life, not knowing it was his life, while it waned from waking coma to coma. Came a landlocked night, he dreamed that he'd landed the last sturgeon in the world, and she looked bad, shrunken, bludgeoned, a blue-ribbed cat scan of herself, her buckled gills gopping, a foam of green roe welling from her mouth. Each egg was a tear, a tiny, entreating vowel he couldn't quite hear as he cast round the boat now morphing into a mountain shack. For water, the merest rain pool, he panicked, or glacial stream. My dearest, my loved one, let me bear you back to haven. By river, the ocean is never far. Thank you. At the still, let me say once again thanks to Oscar and Joanna. I don't know how many, how many were like hundreds of events now <laughs> you've uh, you've held here in the store. So thanks again. I'm glad you read that uh, the excerpt about the conversations. Most of these conversations were done. I let people do whatever they wanted, and everybody, like Ben was suggesting, wanted to. <laughs> To write, but a, few, a couple of them are in-person interviews, and you can sense the difference. And there's a mini version of that that happens at the end, in the afterward, where they're commenting on the other conversations that have happened. Um, Nick Thran and Sue Sinclair go back and forth uh, in writing, and then at some point they just there's just kind of a dash, and they switch to in-person. And, and that excerpt goes like this. Sue, Sue says, so this is our third attempt at having a live conversation. <laughs> the problem is that it is very unnatural and it feels pressured in a weird way that makes it that is making me very uncomfortable. <laughs> but we thought we'd give it another shot because, and then Nick says, because Ben Ladusser and Stephen Hyten were talking about the more off the cuff, unthought, not unthought, but 
unthought out? Unthought out. More immediate response. And I thought here we could potentially juxtapose those against the longer responses, that there might be a kind of lyricism to that conversation. And then Sue says, in your dreams, Ladusar. <laughs> so, so I'm glad that they introduced that at the end of the book. Um, our last reader... And before we do the last reader, I should say you just heard Stephen Heighton reading and talking at uh, the April 4th reading uh, from the book, What the Poets Are Doing at Novel Idea Bookstore, and then uh, final comments behind that by uh, the book's editor, Rob Taylor, who was MC. And tell you what, we should do this. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. I'm David Suzuki. The average lunch or dinner travels 2,400 kilometers to get to your table. Eating local means combating global warming. The future is on your table. Eat your way to a healthier planet. Find out how at davidsuzuki.org. Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the canvassing and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. Folk everything. Every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red Mullet to James, that's a fine motorbike. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice again. And here every Friday from 4 to 6, we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Now up next, uh, the final reading in an April 4th reading from the book What the Poets Are Doing at Novel Idea Bookstore and again as emceed by the book's editor Rob Taylor uh, here is Armand Garnett Rufo and uh, this will carry I'm trying to look at the clock here maybe somewhere between 6 and 7 minutes I think into the second hour today so again here is Armand Garnett Rufo is um, Armin Garnett Ruffo, whose partner isn't here, which is the norm. That was the first time we've had the two people who were actually partners in a conversation both be there. Armin partnered with the poet uh, Liz Howard. Armin Garnett Ruffo is a member of the Chaplow Fox Lake First Nation with familial roots to the Sagamock First Nation. He is the recipient of the Honorary Life Member Award from the League of Canadian Poets and is currently the Queen's National Scholar in Indigenous Literature at Queen's University here in Kingston. 
Um, his most recent book is Treaty Number, which I believe is launching here on April 19th at the bookstore. The date might be wrong. 18th. 18th. Do you know? Stephen knows. But come, come, come on the 18th or you come on the 19th. It'll be great either way. Yeah, all by yourself. All right. So I guess uh, I'll just jump into this. What I'll do is read a little bit from the um, interview, then I'll read a poem or excerpt of a poem by Liz and a, two poems by myself, from myself. So uh, I'm just going to jump into this. Uh, it's called Arboreal Roots. And what's interesting, well, I'll just read it and you'll figure it out. <laughs> Liz Howard, so it starts with Liz. As a way of beginning, I want to acknowledge our shared connection of place. We both grew up in the small town of Chaplow, Ontario, a former fur trading outpost tucked just inside the Arctic watershed. So there it is. We both come from the same place. It is, very, it is a very complicated place, geographically isolated with Anglophone, Francophone, and First Nations communities, and also an often ignored residential school past. It always, it always seemed to me a pretty unlikely place to have produced a poet, let alone two. I want to tell a story of how I'm pretty sure I came across your work, again in such an unlikely place on the Toronto subway. So she actually, um, I had to, a few years back now, I had a poem on the Toronto subway and she saw it and then she started reading my work. And it's interesting because she's obviously, after winning the Griffin, she's better well known than probably I'll ever be. So it was interesting uh, that she had actually read my work. So then, so she um, so she says, at first I'm thrilled to meet another poet from Chaplow. I, I'm saying this to her, an award-winning one. And then she asks me about my work. And I say, as far as, my, as far as my subject matter has evolved, I think it's become more expansive and complicated. So our, our um, interview is really focused on indigeneity and the writing process. Uh, how it has evolved into more expansive and complicated as I've experienced more and more and have come to uh, come under various artistic and personal influences. That said, I think the themes have remained much the same. I'm still writing about colonizations and its repercussions, identity, relationships, nature, language, etc. But it's how I'm saying these things that continues to evolve. I'm thinking of the Thunderbird poems, which includes elements of Ojibwe ontology, spirituality, and the mythic. She goes on to say, it has always been a source of sadness and difficulty for me that I was completely estranged from my father's Ojibwe side of the family. When I started, so I'm jumping around here, when I started writing emotionally propulsive poetry as a young person, I found myself addressing my father, my grandmother, my ancestors. Somehow it was a natural conduit for me. When I moved to the city, I used to study the faces of every man begging on the street to see if I could recognize something of myself in him, to see if he was my father. It wasn't until years later, through my own research, that I learned about the sacred rite of the Shaking Tent, and that was the name of her, her, her first book here, Infinite Sitting Citizen of the Shaking Tent, as you probably all know here. Um, have you ever had, the, had an experience of, of the sacred in your writing? 
or perhaps you can talk about uh, your writing through the shamanistic works of Norval Morisot. And I said, uh, um, what I find interesting is how much our poetry is linked, whether directly or indirectly, to our indigenous heritage and our connection to place. In other words, we cannot talk about our work separately from our life experience. I was recently reading about Elizabeth Bishop and I learned that she drank heavily all her life and had been separated from her Nova Scotian grandparents whom she apparently loved dearly at an early age. I'm mentioning this because from her poetry, poetry you would never know it. And yet while I, she was writing her observational kind of poetry, a whole school of confessional style poetry came into prominence. In fact, Robert Lowell was one of, her form, of the foremost, one of the foremost proponents of confessional poetry, was a friend of Bishop's. There we have it, the impact of the confessional and yet the urge to do something else, to move either behind language or deep into the mechanics of it. This is something that Indigenous poets are not immune to. For example, would I be wrong to say that infinite citizen of the shaking, in the infinite citizen of the shaking tent, you bury, bury is that the correct word? Much of what you say ab said about your father and your relationship to your mixed heritage within, within a Labertine language fixed in science. In contrast to directional confessional poetry, there's usually something else going on in your work that deviates from stating things directly. A poem like Think Tank comes to mind. Think Tent comes to mind. There's so many references moving tangentially outward from direct familiar, familial indigenous experience. Uh, da, da, da. Okay, then I say... Uh, like I said, this tension also exists in the work of indigenous... Po uh, da, 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 da. Sorry, I'm jumping in. Okay, while you, were, while you mentioned that you were using the poetry in this collection to try and reach your father, I wonder if you were actually writing for your father. It seems to me that the kind of poetic incantation you conceptualize ex is extremely personal in its concern for language and Western epistemology. That those Canadian poets who foreground linguistic and textual process over content, language over experience received your book so enthusiastically speaks volumes about the tension that exists in contemporary poetry. Like I said, this tension also exists in the work of Indigenous poets more now so than ever before, but because of our political reality, it's just not as pervasive. In fact, it seems to me that Indigenous poets concerned about this kind of thing try to combine these disparate strands. The poets working with indigenous languages come to mind. I would go so far to say that the scientific language you choose intentionally complicates direct experience probably because your experience, the experiences you write about are so painful for you and because you find yourself outside the shaking tent looking in. Is that a fair assessment? And then she goes on to respond. The poems in Infinite Shaking Tent were for the most part composed. Oops, sorry, I'm reading the wrong part. Your response is sending me off into so many possible nodes that I want to that I want to explore that I feel are all equally necessary, valid, and interesting. And that is necessary to point and it is exactly the point, really, of the concave concatiating, transgressive, paradoxal excess that you speak about in my work. 
What came off, what can come off as burying, concealment, occlusion is really an attempt to render on the page what is really happening in my mind. My ultimate confession, as you have got so right, is the disaster of language is really a result of trauma. There is a feel, fear of re revealing too much. There is the fear of not getting it right. There is the fear of not really being my right to speak, even if it is my own experience. I think I'll leave it up there. Mm. So I, I think what's really, so I think what I'll do is just read a little bit of her work, my work, and we'll, you'll see what I was talking about in a con more, much more concrete way. So this, I make reference to Think, ta uh, think Tent here. And it starts off with uh, uh, I Am My World, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. And uh, here it is. Hos and this is Liz, of course. Hospitality, the first demand. What is your name? The city bound me, so I entered, to dream a science that would name me, daughter, and launch beyond grief, the old thoracic cause, my mitochondrium, a blood orange foundry handed down by the humoral autonomatists, and to be not and not to be inside my own head, perpetually not simply Wittgenstein's girl, but an infinite citizen of the shaking tent. If you are in need of an answer, consult, consult a Gisakowini, scientific rigor, psychoanalysis, a, con a conscious. A, the consciousness of a construct, method amphibious of two minds. That's the translator, her task to receive the call that comes down the barrel of the future. All of us a congress of selves, a vibrational chorus. I know myself to be a guest in your mind, a grand lodge of everything I long to know and hold within this potlatch we call the present moment. And it goes on, but I actually could pronounce the Ojibwe better than I can pronounce her English. <laughs> so, so I'll stop there. But it's a long poem, and it goes on for about three more pages. And then I'll just read. So you can see she's, she's extrapolating on the concept of the shaking tent, whereas what I do is take you into the shaking tent. So here's ancestors performing the ritual of the shaking tent, circa 1958-61, because it's based on an Orval Morso painting. You are standing outside the ceremony, gazing upon three red-hooded members of the secret Medewan Medicine Society in the midst of the mysterious and powerful Jesikam, the shaking tent ceremony. Of the two standing figures, one is drumming, the second is shaking a rattle. The third figure, whose back is towards you, is sitting, presumably praying. Centered in the background, a wigwam stretched to stitched together from hide or bark, staked to the ground. The fourth figure you do not see, the conjurer, is inside the tent, the blessed shaman, the one who makes things tremble, the one who provides questions, the one sanctioned by gift. Bound hand and foot, he calls in Meshkiki, turtle, to interpret for all the other spirits. Meshkiki is no ordinary turtle, but a spirit embodied in the shell of a turtle. 
After the appropriate ritual, the prayers and songs of praise and humility, if the spirits approve, if the ceremony is strong enough, Mashiki will enter the tent and blow away the shaman's bindings. Then whoever or whatever may be follows, the spirits exuding such power that each response they give lifts the tent off the ground, wants to tear it from its mooring, a cacophony of voices slamming into it, all the force of a storm. In another time and place, it is Norval Morzo inside the tent. So it's very different what we're doing. She's extrapolating and I'm kind of literally bringing you into the tent. So I am um, launching a book in a couple or what day? Yes, two weeks. So um, I'll just read one poem, and it was the poem I, I'm reading that I wrote in Kingston here for uh, the Bruce Kaufman. Who is Bruce Kaufman? Where is Bruce? <laughs> Back here. He's over there for the Bruce Kaufman. So I, this was in the film, and I just thought I would read it tonight. And uh, again, I'll just. I should say that when they approached me, I said, well, I, I'd really like to write something about uh, this subject because I've been really interested in this. I've been interested in it a long time, and there's other pieces in here, but it's particularly since I got to Kingston. On the day the world begins again. On the day the world begins again, will it be the strongest animal, the swiftest bird, or the tiniest insect that carries the news to humankind? announces rebirth in a roar, in a squeak, or maybe in silence. On the day the world begins again, will luminous light rise from parting clouds and unquestionable power and refract a miraculous prism of color, while the tallest white pine announces peace and a sprinkling of communion. On the day the world begins again, will those suspended behind bars, in and between gray ugliness, in their deadened shouts of protest, float beyond their circle of cigarette burns and crude tattoos, beyond their sharp cries of where they are and wish they were. On the day the world begins again, will their reimagined selves, the shape of thought, the shape of prayer, bend like molten steel in the fire at the center of the human heart. Will they rise beyond themselves and find their way home? On the way, day the world begins again, will the cages open for them? Well, this is not as exciting to you as it is to me, because it's taken six. I think we have like time for one question, one really good one, if somebody is keen. <laughs> and then we'll direct it vaguely to this corner of the room where they're all already nicely sitting. Um, if none, it won't it be Better be good. Yeah, it'd be kind of disappointing to me after all these readings. But does anyone have any questions for any of them? Or Okay, I have one. There we go. Um, for the first two poets, um, when you were emailing each other, had you met before and did you nope. know each other? We met tonight. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> did that feel um, very strange that you were, like, never having met before at all? <laughs> it didn't. Feel, it didn't feel super strange. I had so that the year that we did the back and forth was. Fought, I had just 
um, done an interview for ARC. I'm no longer on the on the team at ARC, but I, as I said, I did interviews with poets for ARC Poetry Magazine as poet editor, and I did an interview with Jan Zwicky that I and I'd never met her. And then that interview in the in the text of the email, another interview erupted where she was interviewing me, and then that was in the magazine TV too. So I was really blessed with like two amazing conversations with established writers whose work I really enjoyed. But having gone through it with Jan, I, I was like, oh, this is what happens when often I guess how it'll happen is I'll meet writers who I want to meet one day for the first time, probably digitally. And I think that'll probably continue to be the case, and I think that yeah. that's super common. Yeah, I think it's, for as long as I can remember, I, I think I actually got email, not not till 2004, but it's been, so it's been 15 years now, but from that time on, I, I would be hearing from people I never met, and then there'd be conversations, which sometimes would peter out, or sometimes would continue intermittently. And in some cases, I've never met the people in question. Right, they live in other parts of the country and just have never crossed paths, so it didn't seem odd at all. Um, yeah. Thanks. That was a great question. That's an excellent <laughs> question. <laughs> and efficient enough that if there's one more short one, we can probably give it a go. Can we hear Armand answer that question? Oh, oh yeah. I, I know, I was going to say, that's good, good. We had met really, she came to a reading of mine, actually in Toronto, but that was it. And that's why when he said, uh, well, who would you like to interview interview you, I thought, well, let's go. Yeah, that's one thing you'll find if but you I read the really oh, sorry. time with her. Yeah. Uh, but the way that the process worked was that I, uh, I contacted the um, senior poet and kind of offered them a list of possi possible people who I thought would be make a good partnership. And most people chose someone from that list. I, I think Liz was on yours, but it did, I, I can't remember. Um, and I know I'd suggested Ben to Stephen, and Stephen liked the sounds of that. And then some people just pulled someone out of the air who they'd been working, you know, who they'd met briefly and were curious about. So the range of how well people knew each other is all over the place, and, and you can see that manifest in, in kind of the intimacy of the conversation. Sometimes it builds, and sometimes it starts right at the beginning. Um, I'll just close, if you'll indulge me. He's, uh, got, he's got the shepherd's crew. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, I'll just close with a very short excerpt, because we talked about this as a sequel, um, from the interview with Patrick Lane. Patrick Lane died uh, earlier this month, and this was the very end of his interview. He was asked, would you say, as Keats seems to have said, that poetry is an act of soul-making? And Patrick Lane said, not soul-making, but soul-revealing. The poet or artist or of any kind takes us through an object, and here I include objects in sound, such as song or the spoken poem, into the mystery. It is why we are moved by Mozart or Dylan, Handel or Cohen, Van Gogh or Tom Thompson, Alden Nolan or Jack Spicer. At their best, they reveal that which we know in ourselves. The object allows us to feel it again. The poet artist lives with the weight of perception on a much more constant basis than most people. I don't say that egotistically, rather I say it with some humility. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. And it begun about uh, 12 minutes before the end of the first hour, and here now you just heard uh, Armand Garn uh, Garnett Rufo reading at the April 4th reading from the book What the Poets Are Doing in that Having It Novel Idea Bookstore was emceed uh, by the book's editor Rob Taylor whose concluding remarks you just heard there and uh, 
One thing I always include at the end of this hour, uh, what would have been uh, just before 5 o'clock, uh, but uh, we'll do it right now because it concluded that event, uh, that each, uh, both hours of each show uh, each week are saved to my blog space for it shortly after I get home and will remain there for about four years at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. And I want to thank you for having tuned in to the first hour plus a little bit today. And as we immediately now just slide into the second hour, it is about 5.08 at this point. And uh, you, I will let you know, you are listening to, in case you just tuned in, to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6, and we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And uh, I think I began this, airing this a week ago. Uh, we're going to continue uh, in the second hour. We're going to go back to uh, an open mic event in its new format. So uh, moving this hour into the April 2nd, and the journey continues open mic reading in that monthly series. And again, in that new format, you'll hear a vast number of poets uh, because they're done one poem at a time, sort of semi, in, well, it's in the round, but it's, uh, uh, yeah, one poet and one poem. And so that allows a lot of poets in each hour segment. So specifically what you'll hear or who you'll hear are Matt Dravenstadt, Dale Tracy, Roger Dory, Judith Popeil, Aaron Boyce, Eric Folsom, Brent Raycroft, Ron Chase, uh, Benjamin Laughlin, Alyssa Cooper, Jenny Marshall, uh, Michael Castiles, and uh, Sarah Emtish, and myself. So, first though, again, here, the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. And there we go. And uh, tell you what, I hope to have a few minutes at the end of the hour to share uh, a few upcoming events. So let me see if I can get around this pop-up window here. It does not look like it. Cool. Maybe. Let's go ahead and just jump into it. So the first group of poets you're going to hear, because they are one poem, one poet. Uh, first group uh, you're going to hear that evening. Up first, here are Matt Drabenstadt, Dale Tracy, Roger Dory, and Judith Popeil. And it's not letting me go here. Let's try it again. And it looks like the rain has stopped out there. So let's see if I can get this thing to work. And. And I 
We've got a frozen up computer, so let's see what I can do here. Give me a second here, and I'm going to find something I can play to carry us through. And luckily I have Mezzy Star. I've always got Mezzy Star with me, so I guess that's what you're gonna listen to until I can figure out what's going on here. And it's supposed to be sunny skies tomorrow, I believe, after a bit of fog early and tonight, so we'll see how that works for us. And getting her all geared up here. And here we go. Let's go ahead and just do this, and I'll try to see what uh, the problem is.
And that was Mazzy Star with Rhymes of an Hour, and I think it maybe bought me enough time to finish, figure this out. Well, <laughs> maybe not. Let's go ahead. I think what you're going to hear at this point, I think you're going to hear Matt, uh, Matt Drabenstad, Dale Tracy, Roger Dory, and Judith Popeil. Let's see if we got it fixed. Up next, Matt Drabenstad. Let's bring him up. Thank you, Bruce, for convening this space, and thank you all for being a part of making a very sacred space. That's a fact to follow. Um, <laughs> so, uh, my name is Matt, and uh, this poem is about choosing to live. Let us stroll under the speckled lights. Or perhaps watch B-list Netflix over takeout fried rice. Stargaze or screenplays, we will discover beautiful moments in the small things, even though it is the night. With all of the windows down, let us sing, or maybe we will dance around the potholes of our, in our lives. Karaoke in leather seats or two left feet, joy will rise in us, even though nothing feels right. Let us retell our remember whims, swap old scar stories, or uncork that bottle that you've been saving for that special occasion just for grins. Laughing or crying, healing is coming, even though happiness feels like a pastime or present oversight. Let us take a chance on today. There are still 26 flavors to try at Baskin and Robbins, and I hear hot yoga is a liberating experience. <laughs> Stub a toe on a familiar sidewalk, skip a stone, take a risk, break a bone. Success or a failing hot mess, love will find you. Even though you might feel like you're losing this fight, love will find you. Thank you. Instead, let's give another hand. Up next, Dale Tracy, let's bring her up. Someone shoved straw through the mail slot, or the stuffing's showing again, spilling out seams. Things seem stable, but those are conventions. And realisms, the white picket, picking white picket, all down the line. I was tried by the fence post and deemed loosed to the yard. So now my home's heart's flammable, all hearth strewn by stalk. A straw home is set up to take down as the enemy, a thatched dream. Everything else is cultivated leaving only this least possible value. If I only had a brain familiar in this genre, or a beast to feed. Thanks. Steel Tracy, let's give another hand. Up next, Roger Dory, let's bring him up. 
I was stunned when she walked into this bar. She looked so much like you, I thought. I smiled. But the way she looked at me said, I don't know who you are. Yes, how could she know so long ago we were lovers? Two lost angels convinced this union was ordained from heaven above. Wild and free, we believed we would be lovers together till eternity. Our passion strong enough to save us from everything we promised we would never, ever let get in the way, except life got in the way. Then I heard music. Those were the days. I mouthed the words like a prayer of contrition. Yes, those were the days, my friend. We thought they'd never end. How does a chance encounter with a complete stranger bring back a thousand years, a thousand tears? She caught me with these memories in my eyes. I felt courage to go over and say, I once knew someone who looked just like you, as beautiful as you. She smiled, touched my hands like she understood what should have been for us. Then we said our goodbyes. Dory, let's give him another hand. Next, Judith Popeil, let's bring her up.
began many centuries ago with the poet Jalaluddin Rumi in Konya, in Turkey. The turn, a way of finding my true self in the breath, perhaps the breath of God, perhaps the breath of the goddess, perhaps the breath of Allah, perhaps the breath of the Buddha, or any other sacred being that lives amongst us. Breathing through me in the turn, breathing into me in the turn, I really don't know. I really don't know. It's just breath. It's just breath. It's just turning with the breath, living energy propelled through the body, the body, the breath, genetically handed down from generations of celestial beings. In the turn, in the turn, I am whole. I am who, mine. I am human. I am here. I am breath, turning, 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 within the vortex of my own breath, beyond body, beyond breath, beyond my mind, lost, lost in breath, turning, 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 knowing, but not knowing, in continual revolutions, in continual evolutions of what began long, long ago in the tribes of Genghis Khan, perhaps. <laughs> And you just heard Matt Dravenstadt, Dale Tracy, Roger Dory, Judith, and Judith Popeil uh, from the April 2nd and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series held now always at the Elm Cafe. Up next, here are in this order Aaron Boyce, Eric Folsom, uh, Brant Raycroft, and uh, myself as we finished up the first round and then we'll get started in the second round after these are done. So here we go. Next, Aaron Boyce, bring her up. Hi everybody. Last month I read the first poems I'd ever written, my very first reading. Um, and I was so inspired by all of you and the energy that was here that I wrote another one like as soon as I got home. So I'm going to read that to you right now. Um, something that you might remember that I said last time was that I was getting all this um, material from my 24 first dates that I'd had in the last eight months. I'm happy to tell you that I think I may have gone on my last first date, number 25. He's pretty sticky, I like that guy. Um, but this one I wrote uh, when I got home, still single. This is for uh, all of the singletons, for me, for all of you. Um, okay, it's called Singularity. Single, at singularity. A position or configuration where subsequent behavior cannot be predicted, not defined, not well-behaved, 
difficult to differentiate. Either yes or no, neither here nor there, neither yours nor theirs. An isolated object at a temporary still point with infinite possible futures. Aaron Boyce, give her another hand. Next, Eric Folsom. Identity. Now that warm weather brandishes tulips, we found ourselves seated at a patio cafe. Outdoors with elbows kept under restraint at the unstable table chosen to be ours. In earlier days when we were all smokers, we would have just stuffed a book of matches under the ungainly lake that let its friends down. But who carries books of matches now? A couple of quarters or a drink coaster maybe, an advertising flyer swiped from the counter or a page from the newspaper folded in squares. But who carries newspapers around nowadays? Perhaps the metal table has an adjustable foot. Let me tip it over. Here, grab your drink. Or we could scan the ground for the right kind of rock, a sliver of limestone to make everything steady. To stop fluid motions of our bodies gendering, the wobbles and jiggles that undo balance, the liquids and the categories that flirt with the edges of our cups that we end up cradling in our hands. Folsom, let's give another hand. Brett Raycroft, let's bring him up. Hi, everybody. Hi. It's been a while since I was down here. But it's, what is it, Poetry Month International? National Poetry Month. Solar Poetry Month. Oh, it might be that too. Universal Poetry Month. So, I thought I would. Defend poetry, in a way. This is a bit of an odd poem. I don't think I could ever publish it because there's too many of other people's words in it. And it's, a, it's about... It's about that, sort of. Uh, just drop that. Just take these off. The poetry of disengagement. Seek out your team's intrinsic motivators. I like to keep an eye on who's co-opting poetry and why, so I Google that word every day. And here's a gem from Forbes, no less, proud to call themselves the tool of capitalists. When you get used by a tool, you know you've been used. First off, they get the song wrong, the artless fools. It's Kate Tempest, yes, but it ain't where the heart is. It's bubble muzzle, if you know her stuff, or took two minutes to look it up. And it ain't new, it's old, like years, but gold. So here goes, in scare quotes. 
So you're off to work again, you need to make a wage. Although you kind of feel like it's a waste of days, measuring the hours of your life in the paper made, now your pleasure is devoured and it's getting tedious to take the pace. I mean, you're sick of staying late and rising early with the day to face, you know, punching them numbers in the database and pretending that you care about the day-to-day, -day, the office politics, man. They're enough to make your faith decay. Sixteen lines. Is that fair use, would you say? Did they cut a check? I doubt it. Point is, their bullshit has no hook without it. You guessed it, though. Kate's no friend of CEOs. Worried about the loss of productivity when workers, oh yes, it's called a team, are disengaged. By which they mean not giving more than what we're paid for. And what they'd really love is to get to know us better, not well, but well enough to suss out every one of our intrinsic motivators. The tinkle of our private saliva generator. Well, good luck, boss. Kate's not that. She's not resigned like the character in the Kate Tempest song. Because the character in the Kate Tempest song is not resigned, but finding words for anger. And Kate's angry, too. Because here's the song for real. A quatrain of the best from the center of the tempest. Lines the money mag decided not to steal. So tell me, is it time for grief? Or is it time for blame? I tell you, it's time for neither, mate. It's time for change. Let's Brent Raycroft, let's give him another hand. Except for me, we've made it through the list, so I'm going to read, and then we're, I think, a well-deserved break. How's that? I will preface this just a bit, because my favorite poet for the last 25 years uh, passed away yeah, about two weeks ago, and it hit me pretty hard. I probably wrote two or three or more elegiac poems for him. I read one the other night, a longer one, at uh, Queen's Poetry Slam, but I've chosen this one for tonight. And uh, simply called Poet for W.S. Merwin. You will recall his name now, having heard it in the company of poets, but never fully sought it out, explored. He gone now. Once a young poet, then older, then elder, now an echo, that whisper of ghost. You will wonder why you waited so long as you read him now, his words, his efficacy, his legacy, days, months, years, then after in the darkness of days and in their light, his words will follow you. Even they feather-like, light as air, will become for you rock, shelter, wheel, wing. You who did not know of him and wish to discover him now will earnestly, desperately, after one poem, reach out and consume more all of 
of his work in the time, in the fear that one morning they too will lift off their pages and follow him to that other place. Thanks. Maybe about a 10 minute break or so. Enjoy. I really enjoyed your poem. <laughs> I thought I'd cut that after uh, after the applause thing out, but apparently I didn't, and I wasn't quick enough here to hit the button. And But you got to hear a little camaraderie there. So anyway, you just heard Aaron Boyce, Eric Folsom, Brent Recroft, and myself at the April 2nd, and the journey continues, open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next, uh, the group of readers that you'll hear. We're starting the list all over again. Here will you will hear Ron Chase, Benjamin Laughlin, Alyssa Cooper, and Jenny Marshall. Here we go. I'm a country boy, and uh, I've had a lot of time on my hands lately. So I was wandering around Toronto a few weeks ago, and I wrote this: walking along Front Street near church. He was invisible as he walked down the street, the affluent, the homeless, it made no difference. They walked, they walked by him or through him, it was unclear. The people and the weather were bitterly cold, and the stench of the city was thick even in winter, with sporadic relief by the, by the heavenly odors escaping from the Five Guys kitchen or one of the other thousands of restaurants. Taxis honked like threatened peace. Skyscrapers stood as monuments to our collective failure. Colossal empty spaces with people huddled in sleeping bags at their bases. Eating takeout from the garbage. Got any change? Wanna buy a Bible? I'm a fucking missionary. The wind blew harder, kicking up snow like tiny tornadoes in the streets. Pushing everyone into doorways or cars. Seeking shelter from a storm. They only seemed to notice when there was snow. Everyone always seemed to wait for the green light before hurting themselves across the street like sheep. Strong Chase, let's give him another hand. I'm just going to go down the list. I know some only brought one poem, but some I don't know. Benjamin Laughlin, you got another one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to decide. I don't know. I'm just going to do a short one. It's four o'clock. I can't sleep. Cat won't talk. There's so much I don't want to do, but I love you. I'm just not in love with you. I know it sounds jaded. I loathe you. It's complicated. It's 4.30 now. I'm still awake. Now. Thank you. <laughs> Benjamin Laughlin, let's give another hand. 
next, Alyssa Cooper, or bring her up. This piece is called The Things We Learn From Scars. What did our scars whisper to each other the first time that they kissed? I used to think that we would be healed by the friction, that your burning touch would sear away the past. I loved you most because you ached like I did. Made me believe that my pain could be useful. Let me be a tool to excise your past. Let the lines on my arm show you the way. Teach me how to swim even when I cannot see the shore and tell me. What did my scars dream of when they first slept beside yours? I have learned more from our time apart than from our time together. Learned more from the distance, like holding my breath to strengthen my lungs and my memories still itch when summers grow old. The changing leaves like spots of blood on fresh sheets. You are the smell of snow under autumn winds, the taste of pennies on the back of my tongue and my skin gets lonely, remembering that you won't be coming home. What did your scars taste when they first laid their cold lips against mine? What reminds them of me now? And though my scars may yearn on sleepless nights, I remember your love this way only because it couldn't survive. The lessons more important than the lasting. It was our back and forth that taught me to run, taught me to choose. And it's okay to start over. A butterfly unmade, a story undone. It's okay to board a plane with only your skin as carry-on. To not know the destination, to rewrite the epilogue and call it the first chapter. I know how to swim because of you, and I wonder, what stories would our scars tell if they met each other now. So Lisa Cooper, let's give her another hand. Up next, I've got Jenny Marshall. You got another one? Here she comes. Shopkeepers were sweeping with brooms. They just, there's like hardly any snow plows, and they were just beside themselves. Valentine's Day was canceled. I kid you not. Anyway, well, so there's a perspective thing here, right? And so I was feeling rather petulant because I was supposed to be snowboarding. And then a friend of mine that lives there changed it for me. She said her kids, who were nine, and eight, I believe, had never had a chance to make a snowman. So I thought, well, there you go. There's the perspective I'm looking for. So this is called Healthy Perspective in Victoria, BC. 
radiant sunshine, this is the before, crisp aquatic air, white capped mountains sweetly slumbering, water taxis, peddling people, puppy walkers, harbor boats galore. There should be some da 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 here. I wake up to icy trees, crying cherry blossoms, confused crocuses, blanketed in snow. Sidewalks slippery, travelers cautious, hooded heads bowed by wind. In dismay, in disbelief, I muster up some stoic acceptance. Some children, sorry, some sunlight surround the children's playground. It is debuting an unknown season. Snowballs pelting, snowman villages, swirling snow angels, euphoria. My soul bubbles in juxtaposition. A flapjack flip to healing perspective. And healthy perspective, my friend, is everything. Thank you. Danny Marshall, let's give her another hand. And you just heard as a group, uh, Ron Chase, Benjamin Laughlin, Alyssa Cooper, and Jenny Marshall. Again, those are all from the April 2nd, and the journey continues open mic reading in that monthly series, again, now held at the Elm Cafe. And I had mentioned at the start of the, the top of the hour, even the top of the show, that I was going to air four more readings uh, this afternoon. And they were going to be Michael Castile, Sarah M. Tish, I guess three, and uh, Bob McKenzie. But uh, that little glitch we had at the start of this hour, it was already going to be a tight show to work it in, but it would have worked. Uh, but it, it can't now. So I will definitely, they'll be the first ones I play when I go back into this, which I assume will be, actually be uh, this coming week. Uh, what this does is free me up a few minutes here. Uh, uh, to go over some upcoming uh, events and grab that folder here now. And I do have some recorded uh, things I do have to uh, air to at the, just before the top of the hour, but let's go ahead and do this first. I will tell you uh, there is a weekly event uh, coming up or that comes up, but it's actually the Limestone uh, Writers. They are a writing group. Uh, they meet every Wednesday, with the exception of those in August. And they meet at 7 p.m. in room 239 of the of Stauffer Library uh, to uh, critique and support one another's writing. It says fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and memoir are all represented. For more information, you should contact uh, Dave at D. 
P-R-A-T-T, so that's D as in Dave, uh, P as in Peter, R-A-T-T-1939 at Hotmail.com if you'd like more information about uh, the group or taking part. I will tell you, too, that uh, Juvenus Festival in 2019 is now well underway. Uh, they had an opening event on Sunday at uh, in the... Not sure which theater, but it was in uh, the old. Uh, I think it was in the rotunda of the uh, of the th- theological building, the old theological building on campus. And I heard it was a great turnout. I also attended their Viva Voce event. Uh, was that two nights ago? And it was really nice as well. Or was it last night? It was. Yeah, one of those. Let me see here. I think it's still in here. Yeah, it was May 1st. So this is May 3rd, right? And, uh, yeah, I think it's May 3rd. I'm losing track of days. I don't know where April went. So anyway, but that uh, that is going on, the, the 2019 Juvenus Festival. A number of, <clears throat> excuse me, things going on. I would suggest uh, lots of workshops, lots of activities. Uh, lots of different kinds of workshops as well. And uh, check out uh, www.juvenusfestival.ca. And then you can go into the festival schedule and workshops for uh, 2019. You can get all the information there. They also do have a Facebook, uh, I believe it's a group page. Uh, but it might be an event page, but I think they might have both. I know they have a group page. So uh, just uh, click in uh, Juvenus. And that's J-U-V-E-N-I-S. And uh, part of that, tomorrow I I will actually be facilitating. This is for, uh, the whole thing is to highlight and showcase and uh, offer workshops and opportunities for those who are 13 to 30 years old. And so... uh, I will be facilitating an, uh, a workshop I do. It's called Intuitive Writing Workshop tomorrow, uh, May 4th, uh, from 1 to 3.30 p.m. It's going to be in Meeting Room 1, which is on the second floor of the Kingston Frontenac Public Library. But uh, you can find all of the workshops, and again, there are a number of them, uh, all through the next coming week, all the way up until, I believe, the 11th itself. So... A lot of different. There's dance. There's uh, there's artistic work, uh, and there are a lot of a lot of uh, other writing workshops. And so, definitely check out the full list. Check out the full list of events too. I'd really encourage you to do that. And then uh, coming up on Monday, May sixth, uh, from five thirty to eight p.m. Uh, it's a monthly series called the Writ Large Writing Group. And what they say, they uh, I'm just reading directly from their link. It says, we are a group of committed, easygoing writers of fiction and creative nonfiction. It says, uh, we have a sense of humor and a range of writing experience. And I w- I'm going to just give you uh, their website, and you can check that out. It's going again Monday, May 6th from 530 to 8 at the Mermaid Avenue Sandwich Factory, which is at 236 Wellington Street. And uh, you can find them on uh, an app called Meetup. So www.meetup.com slash writ dash large slash. That will get you there. 
And then uh, what you've heard uh, in this last hour, uh, the next of those events is coming up. It's the next and the journey continues open mic reading in that monthly series. It is coming up the night after Tuesday, May 7th, 7 to 9.30 p.m. Doors open at 6.30. It's again at the Elm Cafe, which is at 303 Montreal Street. Uh, they close at uh, 5 o'clock normally, but they reopen on the first Tuesday night of the month, which is Arnate. And uh, let us uh, do our poetry thing then. And I will mention that we are celebrating our 10th birthday that evening. So looking very much looking forward to that. Always looking forward to the event. But it's kind of special, I guess, when it's a birthday event. And especially when it's one of those, I guess, that we pay more attention to for some reason. So anyway, hope to see you there. Uh, Also in uh, Tweed... They have their first Monday, our first Tuesday of the month reading called First Tuesday Muse, and uh, I believe they're celebrating their third anniversary up there. It's hard to believe. I remember when they first started. It's so cool. So, uh, and it, it's held at the Tweedsmere Tavern in downtown Tweed. They've got a Facebook group page uh, as opposed to an event page, and they just add the events to it. So, check that out. Uh, just check out. Uh, the first Tuesday Muse, and uh, it should take you right to the page. Again, theirs is uh, Tuesday, May 7th, 7 to 9 p.m. at the Tweedsmere Tavern. And uh, a reading at uh, Tamworth Bookshop in support of Children's Book Week. Uh, Barbara Nickel will read from Lady of Kent. It's a book of light verse for children. It's a Peddler Press book uh, with sophisticated work with cover blurbs by Eleanor Watch, uh, Wachtel, Judith Thompson, and Esther Spalding. That is coming up a week from Sunday, May 12th at 2 p.m. It says all are welcome. Light refreshment will be served. And I'm um, just taking a look at the time here, and I do think that's as far as I'm going to get, but that does take us through at least uh, the coming week. Uh, the bookshop is located uh, at the bottom of Peel on Bridge Street East in Tamworth. It's easy to find, so highly recommend. It's a beautiful bookstore. Highly recommend you check it out. It sounds like a wonderful event. I do want to thank you. Yeah, I should say first, uh, you have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. My name is Bruce here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. We do stream live online, www.cfrc.ca. Again, as I did at the top of the hour for the first hour, remind you that uh, shortly after the show ends, I will upload it to my blog space. It will be the four years at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. Hope you can stay tuned for two hours of saltwater music. It's East Coast Music, hosted by Rob Carnell, coming up right after these messages, right off the top of the hour. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information, or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.